Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, December 27th. Thank you all for tuning in and welcome to our viewers and listeners. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 82 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. Today, Ali will be talking about his new report that he co-wrote with reporter David Sheen on some brand new details about how Israeli forces killed their own civilians in Kibbutz Be'eri on October 7th. And of course, we'll have John with an extensive military analysis and some of the latest videos made by the Palestinian resistance, so stay tuned. But first, a look at some of the news over the last few days. Over the Christmas holiday, Israel continued to heavily bombard areas across the Gaza Strip by land, air, and sea. Video obtained by Al Jazeera showed the immense destruction by Israeli forces of the Sheikh Radwan neighborhood in the northern Gaza Strip. In the middle of Gaza, Israeli forces carried out more than 50 individual strikes on three refugee camps, Al-Burej, Nusirat, and Magazi camp where at least 70 people were killed and dozens were injured. Israel also destroyed the roads connecting the camps, which impacted the delivery of relief aid to those in need, according to the United Nations. A resident of Magazi spoke to our contributor Gada Abed about his search for his loved ones amidst the rubble. Our reporter wrote, quote, with every step amid the ruins of their home, he sought to find the bodies of his parents, siblings, and their children. The rubble was so heavy that recovering their bodies was impossible. Quote, I survived, the man said, his voice trembling with grief, but I don't know where my parents and brothers are. Another resident said, quote, we will always remember this night, December 24th. It is the bloodiest in Magazi since the war began. You can read more by Gada Abed on the massacre in Magazi on electronicintifada.net. On Christmas Day in Gaza, Israeli media published a video reportedly showing Israeli forces detaining hundreds of Palestinians inside Al Yarmouk football stadium in Gaza City, according to the UN. The videos show the detainees, including children, older people, and persons with disabilities being forced to strip to their underwear in degrading conditions, the UN said. The Geneva-based Euromed Human Rights Monitor submitted a primary, primary report to UN officials and the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court on Monday, documenting, quote, dozens of cases of field executions carried out by the Israeli army in the Gaza Strip. The human rights group said, quote, that they requested an immediate investigation into these crimes, calling for the perpetrators to be held accountable and for justice for all victims. Here is one such video testimony filmed by Al Jazeera of a man witnessing a summary execution of his brother in front of his mother in Jabalia camp. I am a UN staff. Unfortunately, they don't have mercy on the UN staff or any international organization staff. I live in this apartment with my family. The sniper went there and the tanks came to this area. I told them in Hebrew that we are only civilians in this building, but they shot us. My son, my niece and a third one. I kept telling them we need to be treated, but no way. They continued their shooting. They broke the gates and they brought us down. They told us to take our clothes off and then told us to come to this area. I told them there were some injured people here, but they didn't care. 
They asked me if I'm a UN staff. I told them yes. They took me with them and interrogated me four times. They accused me of being a member of Hamas, and I'm not. They asked me where I was on October 7th. I said I was at home, preparing myself to go to my school. They left the children bleeding for more than an hour. They told me that the resistance fighters used to shoot from our house. And of course, that is not true at all. They killed my brother in front of my mother. They shot him from under his chin, hitting his entire skull. They didn't allow me to say goodbye to my dead brother. They kept asking me if I'm a Hamas member. I told them, no, I'm not. I blame the UN because the UN staff have no protection. The Israeli forces burnt my house. Why did they do that? I'm not a resistance fighter. Finally, they gave us a paper that says we are okay and that we didn't do anything wrong. We were humiliated. My brother was killed. My children wounded for no reason. What's our fault? What's the fault of the civilians? On Tuesday, video testimonies by Palestinian detainees who had been taken to Israel and then reportedly released back into Gaza through the Karim Shalom crossing were released to the media. The UN said that, quote, detainees, including older persons, alleged that they had been tortured and ill-treated in captivity, with video footage showing bruises and burns on their bodies. They also reported being deprived of food, water, and access to toilets and being exposed to the elements. Meanwhile, top Israeli lawmakers are openly advocating that Palestinians be, quote, voluntarily migrated from Gaza. The Electronic Intifada's senior editor, Maureen Murphy, reported that Israel's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, had, quote, told lawmakers from his Likud party in recent days that he is pushing for the voluntary migration of Palestinians in Gaza. He said that the challenge was finding, quote, countries that are willing to absorb them, and we are working on it. Maureen writes that, quote, voluntary migration is euphemistic language for a coerced mass expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza a proposal made by senior Israeli politicians such as Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich throughout the war. Removing Palestinians from their homeland so that they may be replaced by foreign Jewish settlers has always been the single organizing principle of the state of Israel. Israel's military operations in Gaza, which have rendered the territory unsuitable for sustaining human life by destroying housing, medical facilities, and other essential infrastructure, appear to be aimed at forcing an expulsion on that same scale or even greater, Maureen reports. Israel's evacuation orders are pushing Gaza's population of 2.3 million Palestinians to an increasingly narrow coastal area near the Egyptian border. That was from our senior editor Maureen Murphy's new piece, Netanyahu boasts of voluntary migration as horrors are revealed in Gaza's north, up now on electronicintifada.net. And finally, in the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed two Palestinians, including a 17-year-old child, Ahmad Mohammed Yusuf Yagi, and injured two others, shooting them with live ammunition during a raid into the Al-Fawar refugee camp in Hebron on Tuesday. Since October 7th, 295 Palestinians, including 77 children, have been killed in the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem, according to the UN. But we'll now take a look at a new investigation published by the Electronic Intifada about what really happened on October 7th. 
We reveal how an Israeli general ordered tanks to fire on a house with Israeli civilians in it that day in Kibbutz Be'eri, and then tried to cover the incident up with a fake story of heroism. Now relatives of those he killed are demanding the truth. That general, Barak Hiram, also appears to have originated one of the most poisonous fabrications Israel told about October 7th, the atrocity tale that Hamas fighters tied up and executed children in cold blood. That lie, told directly to President Biden by Benjamin Netanyahu, helped lay the ground for genocide. Ali, you wrote this piece with investigative journalist David Sheen that sheds more light on what happened on October 7th, particularly how Israel killed many of its own people on that day. Walk us through these new revelations. Thanks, Nora. Yes, uh, as you know, this is a story we've been on since the very first day, and it's a central part of what happened on October 7th that mainstream media continue to pretend not to see. But important new pieces of information have come out in Israeli media over the last uh, week or two weeks that really add to uh, what we know. And there's both new video evidence and new testimony. Is that right? Yes. Uh, first, in terms of the video, just last week, Israel's Channel 12 uh, released a video shot from an Israeli military helicopter on October 7th over Kibbutz Be'eri. That's one of the Israeli colonial settlements just a few miles east of Gaza. And um, we can actually take a look at that now. And this is, uh, uh, was published on... אנחנו מקבלים הזדמנות נדירה לראות מלמעלה את הטרגדיה של קיבוץ בארי, כפי שהכוחות ותושבי הקיבוץ ראו אותה בזמן אמת. בשעה 4.20 אחר הצהריים, יותר מתשע שעות אחרי שחדרו לי וארי מאות מחבלים, שכונות שלמות בקיבוץ עולות באש. אני צופה עכשיו על בארי, על החלק הצפוני, אני רואה מוקד עשן בחלק, ה... בחלק הצפוני מערבי מול הבית עלמין, שם זה הקרקלים הצופים? התיעוד הזה חושף בפנינו את היקף הלחימה ומספר המחבלים הבלתי נתפס שהשתלטו על הקיבוץ. הוא תיעד את הטנק שסייע לכוחות בבית של פסי וירה פגזים לעבר הבית. והם הביאו פתאום טנק. אני אומרת לאחד החיילים, תגיד, אבל אם אתם יורים פגזים זה לא יפגע בבני ערובה? אז הוא אומר לי, לא, אנחנו רק עושים את זה בצדדים, להוריד קירות. הוא מעצים את סימני השאלה בהתנהלות צה"ל והימ"מ מול בית עם 15 בני ערובה. So what you see there, um, there's a lot of smoke rising. We'll keep running the video while I speak uh, from houses in the kibbutz. But now for the first time, you actually saw the flashes in the video. You see an Israeli tank rolling through the streets of the kibbutz and actually firing a shell into one of the houses. And the woman you see there, speaking briefly is Yasmin Porat, and I think a lot of people will remember that name. I'll come back to Yasmin in a minute. But what I want to emphasize here is that what we know is this was not the only tank used in Kibbutz Be'eri on October 7th, and this was not the only shot fired. It's just the only shot that so far we've seen uh, on video. As David Sheen and I uh, write in our article, Another tank showed up a short time later and fired towards 
that particular house, killing a number of the Israeli civilians there, along with all the Palestinians, or almost all of them, including the partner of Yasmin Parat and a, li a little Israeli girl called Liel Hatsroni, uh, and the husband of an Israeli woman called There were, in fact, 15 captives at that house, along with several dozen Palestinian fighters, and all 15 of the Israeli captives were killed, except for Hadas Dagan and Yasmin Porat. Now, we already knew a lot of this from Yasmin Porat's early interview on Israeli state radio back on October 15th, which went viral after the Electronic Intifada translated it. Porat told about how the Palestinians holding the Israelis there had treated them really humanely and assured them that they would be safe. And you can see her again in this little clip talking about her immediate fears and doubts when she saw Israeli forces rolling up with a tank right outside the house where her own partner and the other civilians were. But it was indeed the Israeli forces who showed up and started firing heavily and who ended up killing everyone there uh, according to uh, Yasmin Parat. Right. And and now Hadas Dagan has spoken out herself. That's right. Uh, earlier this month, she gave her first interview to Israeli television, along with relatives of some of the other Israelis who were killed uh, at that house when the Israeli tanks opened fire. So here's just a short clip of Hadas Dagan speaking to Israel's Channel 12, and this was on December 9th. <laughs> Yeah. And there you see that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, uh, we've we've also learned more about the Israeli officer who ordered that particular tank shelling. Um, uh, he's a Brigadier General Barak Hiram. What did you and David Sheen um, find out about him? Yeah, General Barak Hiram is a fairly senior Israeli military officer. He's held a number of prestigious commands and has, in fact, been named as the next commander of the Gaza Division. That's the same Israeli division that was supposed to guard the perimeter around Gaza, but which was virtually destroyed and simply collapsed uh, when attacked by the Palestinian resistance on October 7th. And Barak Hiram has tried to portray what happened in uh, Kibbutz Berry in a completely different and false manner, uh, covering up how his order killed Israelis. Uh, and of course, he's tried to portray himself in a in a heroic manner, he was uh, he portrays himself as having just uh, rushed to the scene and taken charge and and basically saved the day. And he made these claims in an interview with Ilana Dayan, one of Israel's top investigative journalists. And here's Hiram speaking to Dayan, and this was in an interview broadcast uh, on Israel's Channel Twelve. Uh, on October 26th. Let's take a look. Okay. 
בשלב הזה גם יש כוח של ימ"מ שהכנסנו פנימה ליישוב, ותוך כדי שהוא מטהר את השכונה שהוא קיבל, אחת האזרחיות מצליחה לברוח מהמבנים, ונוצרת איזושהי דינמיקה או תחושה שהמחבלים שמתבצרים שם בתוך הבלוק מוכנים אולי לדבר או משהו כזה. לנהל משא ומתן. לכאורה, ואפילו מגיע צוות מום מטכלי שמנסה ליצור איתם קשר ולכרוז. אמונים? אמונים לנו בטיל RPG. ובשלב הזה אני מאשר למפקד, למפקד הכוח של הימ"מ שהיה שם לפרוץ פנימה ולנסות להציל את האזרחים שכלואים בתוך אותם מבנים. זאת אומרת, כשהכוח של הימ"מ מנהל שם באמת קרב גבורה ומסתער פנימה, עוד יש איזושהי תקווה שאולי יש בני ערובה שאפשר לחלץ? אני חושב שבבלוק הזה היו כ-20 אזרחים, ואני חושב שכוח הימ"מ הצליח להציל את ארבעה מהם. כל היתר נרצחו. כל היתר נרצחו בדם קר. כמה מחבלים לדעתך היו רק במתחם הזה? בספירת הגופות הגענו ל-26 מחבלים. רק במתחם הזה. רק במתחם הזה. ושם מצאנו שמונה ילדים כפותים ביחד ואירועים. זוג של בעל ואישה כפותים ביחד ואירועים. Let's run that again without the sound if we can. I'd like to just summarize the points he made because there may be people listening. And so... As you can see here, he's talking to Ilana Diane, and she's kind of walking him through. She says there were no hostages. And he talks about what happened, that the commanders were on the scene, that they brought into Kibbutz Beri. And while purifying the neighborhood, that's the term they use for their violence, one of the citizens manages to flee. Now, that's a reference to Yasmin Parat actually leaving uh, under negotiations. And he gives the impression that uh, negotiations were impossible, and he gives the order to the commandos to rush in uh, and save the day. So on his order, after the negotiations fail and the terrorists, as he calls them, respond with an RPG, he authorizes the commandos, the Yamam, to burst inside and to try to save the citizens trapped in those buildings. And then the Yamam wage a truly heroic battle, according to Ilan, Ilana Diane and charge inside. And he claims that there were about 20 uh, citizens inside. There were, in fact, 15. And he claims the commandos saved four of them. And then Ilana Diane says all the rest were murdered, murdered in cold blood. And then... Uh, Uh, Barak Hiram goes into these details where he claims we found eight children tied together and shot and a couple, a husband and wife tied together and shot and uh, that and then Elana Dayan asserts that there were no uh, actual hostages because everyone had been murdered. So now there are a couple of outrageously false statements. that uh, David Sheen and I detail in the article. First, there were, in fact, extensive negotiations with the Palestinians inside, and that had led to the surrender of one of the Palestinian commanders, along with Yasmin Parat. And there was another officer on the scene 
who was arguing with Hiram that force should not be used at that point anyway, and that negotiations should continue because, as uh, we had seen, uh, Yasmin Parat and this Palestinian had come out due to the negotiations. The second outrageous lie is that the Yamam, the Israeli commando force, went into the house to rescue hostages and, in fact, rescued four people. This is pure fiction. There was no rescue attempt by the commandos, and it was uh, Barak Hiram's order to fire that ensured that everyone still alive among the captives was killed except for Hadas, uh, Dayans, uh, Hadas Dagan. So that is a complete fabrication. There was no rescue attempt. He made that up. But perhaps the most consequential lie is uh, Hiram's claim that uh, the captives were tied up and executed in cold blood. This is a pure fabrication. As we detail in our article, this did not happen in this incident. And there's no evidence that it happened anywhere else. And why do you say that this is the most consequential lie? There's so many. Why is this the most consequential one? Well, David Sheen and I believe that uh, Barak Hiram's story that uh, he started telling very early on before this interview with uh, Ilana Dayan is the origin of one of the major lies that Israel has been telling about uh, October 7th. It's a fabricated atrocity tale that Israel used and is still using to justify and incite genocide. A lot of people believe this. And here's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking on October 9th. So this is very early on. Let's take a look. The savage attacks that Hamas perpetrated against innocent Israelis are mind-boggling. Slaughtering families in their homes, massacring hundreds of young people at an outdoor festival, kidnapping scores of women, children, and elderly, even Holocaust survivors. Hamas terrorists bound, burned, and executed children. They are savages. Yeah, and then now here's another clip. This is from October 11th, and it's a clip of Netanyahu speaking to President Joe on the phone. Uh, Joe, I want to give you a clear picture of the difficult situation we face. We were struck Saturday by uh, an attack whose savagery I can say we have not seen since the Holocaust. I mean, we had hundreds massacred, families wiped out in their beds and their homes, women brutally raped and murdered, over a hundred kidnapped, including children. And since we last spoke, the extent of this evil, it's only gotten worse. They, they took dozens of children, bound them up, burned them, and executed them. And uh, look, here is Netanyahu writing on, uh, on Twitter on Christmas Eve, so just a few days ago. And uh, he says there in his tweet, we're facing monsters, monsters who murdered children in front of their parents and parents in front of their children who raped and beheaded women who burned babies alive who took babies hostage as you can see he repeats a whole series of genocidal lies uh, this didn't happen they didn't 
tie babies up. They didn't rape and behead women. We did a segment a couple of weeks ago on the mass rape claims and the total absence of any credible evidence of that. So there's no claiming that Netanyahu was just going off uh, confused reports or the so-called fog of war in the early days on and after October 7th. His latest statements show that this is a deliberate campaign of lies, of incitement uh, to genocide. And right there under his tweet that we just showed, uh, you could see that other users of, uh, of X or Twitter were posting notes pointing out that these are lies. So that's just one of the ways that uh, people can try to point out the truth. Of course, I, that pales next to the, the kind of megaphone and platform Netanyahu has, and even more so, President Biden, who has been repeating these lies constantly. The difference, I think, between Netanyahu and Biden is that Netanyahu knows he is lying, while Bi Biden probably believes these lies. Of course, that's not an excuse. I think it's just the reality of the severely degraded capacities of the so-called leadership in the White House. Yeah. Um, what about any fallout over this uh, inside Israel? What is what? What can you tell us about that? Yes, as I said, relatives of the Israelis who were killed by uh, General Barak Hiram are demanding an investigation. They were interviewed by uh, Channel 12 and publicly called for an investigation. They said, we don't know what happened here. We don't know why our loved ones were killed, who gave the order to open fire, and so on. Uh, but there really has been a closing of the ranks within the Israeli leadership. There was a big story about Kibbutz Be'eri just a couple of days ago. This was on December 22nd. And it's mostly a whitewash, which is what you'd expect from the New York Times. But it does mention in passing that the tank shell ordered uh, to be fired by Barak Hiram killed the husband of Hadass Dagan. And uh, as you can see there, that's that's David Sheen and I wrote a whole article about this. The New York Times managed a few sentences about what is really the most telling part of this whole episode in Kibbutz Berry. And that uh, New York Times report, whitewashed though it is, prompted some criticism in Israel. But we've seen major figures, including former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and even Israel's military spokesperson, John Conricus, have come out to publicly back Barak Hiram. So he has a lot of support to cover up this crime. And it's doubtful that there'll be any real accountability within Israel, at least for the foreseeable future. Of course. <clears throat> Excuse me, but Ali, um, this was this tank shelling at Kibbutz Berry just an isolated incident? Was it some kind of aberration, or is there, you know, a bigger story here in terms of uh, Israel killing its own soldiers and civilians on October seventh, knowing about it, and and of course covering it up? Yeah, I, you know, that's a question a lot of people ask, and they say, oh well this is just one little incident. It's, it's uh, still have all these hundreds of people who were killed by Hamas. Uh, so this, this little incident doesn't change the picture. But even in Kibbutz Berry, the incident at the house where Yasmin Parat and Hadas Dagan 
were held along with uh, all those other people who were killed is not the whole story. It's a part of the story we now know well because, uh, because Yasmin Parat and Hadass Dagan lived to tell the tale, but it is not the whole story. As David Sheen and I write, we also know that Israeli forces not only used tanks in Kibbutz Berry, but Apache combat helicopters as well. And here's Erez Tidhar, an Israeli rescuer who was in Kibbutz Berry that day, describing what he saw there. Shalom, so we came to Berry. כדי לתאר לך את הסיטואציה, אתה יושב בקיבוץ בתוך מדינת ישראל, שאני מטייל שם בשבתות עם הילדים באופניים. אתה כל דקה יורד עליך טיל, כל דקה. פתאום אתה רואה טיל ממסוק שיורה לתוך הקיבוץ. אבל לא הבנתי. מסוק צהלי יורה לתוך קיבוץ ישראלי, ואז אתה רואה טנק נוסע ברחובות הקיבוץ, מצודדת אותך ויורה לפגז לתוך בית. Hmm. Yeah, let's, let's, if we can, Tamara, let's run that again without the sound. And I'm going to read the subtitles because I know that there are some people who are just listening. Uh, and so just so they can read the, the subtitles, I'm going to read uh, the subtitles of Erez Tidhar, who is the rescuer who was there. Uh, keep, yeah, just let it run. Let's let the video run. This is Erez Tidhar, uh, who is there with something called the ATAM Rescue and Evacuation Unit. And I'll say more about that in a, in a second. Uh, here we go. He says, you're sitting in a kibbutz inside the state of Israel where I tour on Saturdays with the kids on bikes. Every minute a missile comes down on you. Every minute. And suddenly you see a missile from a helicopter that fires into the kibbutz. You say to yourself, I don't get it. An IDF helicopter firing into an Israeli kibbutz. Then you see a tank driving through the streets and firing a shell into the house. These are things you cannot comprehend. So then let's take a look uh, at this photo from Kibbutz Berry. This is a photo from a news agency that uh, we purchased the license to, to publish at the Electronic Intifada. And look at this. There's obviously no way Palestinian fighters could have caused such total destruction with the light weapons they had, AK-47 assault rifles and a few RPGs. Right. Um, what about in other places aside from Kibbutz Be'eri? Right. Well, we know this was the story across the region on October 7th. Let me remind you that in November, an Israeli police source admitted that military helicopters shot at civilians at the supernova rave, the desert dance party near uh, Kibbutz Berry that Yasmin Porat and her partner had attended. And Nof Erez, an Israeli Air Force colonel, has even gone as far as to call the Israeli response to October 7th a mass Hannibal, that's an application on a wide scale of Israel's so-called Hannibal Directive, a military doctrine that allows the deliberate killing of Israel's own people rather than permitting them to be taken captive. And that same month, Israel revealed that hundreds of 
unrecognizably burned bodies it thought were its own civilians were actually Hamas fighters, a clear admission of indiscriminate fire from helicopters on a massive scale. And earlier this month, the Israeli admitted, uh, the Israeli military admitted to immense quantities of so-called friendly fire incidents on October 7th, but asserted that it would not be morally sound to investigate them as the Israeli newspaper Yediat Ahronot reported. Mm-hmm. Moreover, Israel has faced huge international embarrassment and anger at home after its army admitted to killing three Israeli prisoners who had managed to get away from their captors in Gaza. We have links to all of these other stories in the piece that uh, David Sheen and I wrote. The key thing here is that the truth has been coming out really in bits and pieces. But unless there is a full independent inquiry, we probably will not get the full picture. But we at the Electronic Intifada will continue to pursue the story as far as we can. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, I encourage all of our viewers and listeners to go to the Electronic Intifada and read uh, the piece that you and David wrote, Israeli general killed Israelis on 7 October, then lied about it. It was published on Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th. So um, yeah, encourage everyone to read it. And uh, there are much, much more details. uh, And and I think all of the the videos and evidence uh, that we just saw here are also embedded in that piece. Thank you, Ali. Um, and uh, before we go to John with the jelly bean segment, um, I know that you had a an important announcement uh, about uh, supporting EI and our writers in Gaza. Thanks, Dora. And I'll just say, I came into the office this morning. I, I found <laughs> these jelly beans. I really don't know where they came from, but. Um, let me uh, yes I, let me take this opportunity to once again thank all our viewers and supporters uh it's really overwhelming some of you know that i am uh, making it through my email and and uh, i'm reading everything and i am replying to everything it's just taking me time and uh it's it's wonderful to read all the messages of support and i'm sharing them with uh, some of them with um, all my colleagues. And I, I want to take the opportunity uh, also, you know, you know me and you know Nora and you know John uh, and you know Asa from this live stream. Asa f- is, is traveling today. Uh, but I also want to shout out uh, my thanks and appreciation for our other colleagues at the Electronic Intifada, Michael Brown, Leah Caldwell, Omar Kermi, Maureen Murphy, Asa, of course, and Tamara Nassar, who does so many things, including making this live stream work as smoothly and as proficiently as it, as it does. And uh, Tamara, maybe we can put the website up. And uh, again, this is a reminder for all of you who already know the Electronic Intifada, but for those who are just joining this live stream and learning about us for the, for the first time, We want you to know that we are an online publication that's been around for 20 years. We publish uh, news analysis about Palestine that you won't get anywhere else. We are completely independent, nonprofit. We are supported by you, readers and viewers like you. And since the start of this genocide in Gaza, we uh, 
we have uh, been um, publishing way more than we usually do, uh, from uh, particularly from our writers in Gaza. And one of the people who uh, works closely with them, who I didn't mention earlier, but of course uh, is is very much part of the team, is David Cronin. You also know him as a, a writer. And David is one of our very fine editors. And you can see right there the amazing uh, articles, the re reportage from the ground in Gaza that uh, we are publishing. There was the piece from Ghada Abed that uh, Nora mentioned at the beginning, the horrifying massacre in Merazi camp. And we're very concerned about our friends and colleagues in Merazi. We have several of them there. We heard from... Uh, from two of them this morning let, letting us know that they were okay, but that the situation there is absolutely uh, horrific. Yeah. Uh, all of this, again, as I say, is done with your support. December, I, I, I have to say, I, the thing I like to do is to spend time reporting, writing, reading, editing, uh, but every December we raise most of the funds that we use in the upcoming year to do our reportage. And this year it's particularly important because of the amount of extra work we're doing, the amount of extra writing we're publishing from Gaza, and we do pay all our writers in Gaza to make sure that they have the support they need. So if you can, please do make a donation. Now, you can go to the website and hit Donate Now. The other thing is we write in the description to this video, right down below, there are links to uh, two different donation portals. One, you can use credit card or PayPal. That's a network for good. The other, you can use credit card, Apple Pay, or you can make a donation directly from a U.S. bank account. Of course, donations are welcome from anywhere and they are tax deductible for people in the united states and so again thank you so much we're tr i i should say also we did announce a matching challenge a couple of weeks ago we met the match and we're so grateful to everyone who donated but we're not done we still do need to raise some funds to make sure that we have the resources we need to keep doing this work in the coming year and the other ways you can support us, of course, click on that Get Updates link and sign up for our newsletter so that you can evade social media censorship. And please share our articles, share the videos, uh, let people know about what we do. This is one of the ways we can uh, answer the call of our friends and colleagues in Gaza to keep talking about Gaza, to keep informing the world. And one thing I want to say again that we are so grateful and humbled by the support we get. And I want to say, if you can make a donation, please do. But if it's going to cause you hardship, if it means you or someone in your family is going to go without something you need, please don't. Support us in the other ways. But if you have uh, extra money, you can make a little bit of an extra donation on behalf of those who can't, because all of this work is free for everyone it's for the whole world. That's why we do it. And uh, we do it with your support. Mm -hmm. I went on a little bit long, uh, Nora, but I just <laughs> wanted okay. to, 
to make sure that we really say thank you to everyone who has already uh, shown their support for us. And we want to, oh, one thing I will say I have in my notes to add is you can, on either of those two links that are in the description, set up a monthly donation if you want to. It's a way to sustain us over the year. And uh, that also helps a great deal. And thanks to everyone who's already done so. We love you and we can't do this without you. Indeed. Thank you so much. Um, and with that, uh, John, um, I know that the resistance is hand-delivering uh, pancakes. We've, we've said in the past, pancakes uh, on top of jelly beans. Walk us through the uh, latest resistance jelly bean videos. Okay, guys, we've got a lot of them today, so so <laughs> been busy. So this first video is um, is from Gaza City, and we see a fighter carrying uh, what is called a shawaz. Um, he's hand carrying this explosive, um, and you can see on the right hand side there, you can see the Merkava tank uh, in the neighborhood. And again, this is something that um, the soldiers don't get out of the tanks ever. So they don't see him coming. So they don't see him coming yet. They see him right now. We've cut the video in an effort to not be censored, but you can see him lying down on the ground there, placing the explosive charge. Um, the tank moves forward, it explodes, and he gets out of the way um, for people asking. There's a freeze frame of him there. You can see him uh, getting out of the way. Um, the, the unbelievable courage, I don't know how many times we want to loop this, uh, I think as many as we can, because it's just, um, it's a really remarkable um, snapshot into the, um, both the qualitative um, advances of the resistance, this Shawaz device is an explosively formed uh, penetrator, which I'll describe to you uh, in a moment, but it's a type of weapon that has come out um, since the ceasefire, since the pause, um, as Israeli positions become more fixed, um, the resistance is able to use different weaponry um, than they used in the first half of the war um, to target um, in different ways um, the Israeli forces that are inside the Gaza Strip. And this is from this weekend, uh, a weekend that the Israeli that the Israeli military said was its uh, most difficult weekend of the ground war, which is now. Uh, 55 days on and so I think we're getting from these videos an idea and we will from the pre from the ones that follow uh, an idea why it was the toughest um, for the Israelis so again he's getting in position what we don't hear with the sound is that they see him in the tank coming at the last moment and they poke out of their porthole and fire a shot at him which he avoids while putting the blast in the back corner of the tread, which is to disable the tank from moving. But then he's pointed this explosively formed penetrator towards the door, the back door of the Merkava tank, which is the weakest um, spot on the tank. And so um, I have a clip here of a, an American Delta Force soldier from Iraq who takes uh, less than one minute to explain um, what an explosively formed penetrator, an EFP bomb is. Um, but in short, it's uh, instead of exploding out uh, in all directions, uh, it explodes in 
in a direction. So when he's aiming that explosive at the back door of the tank, it's firing directly at the torb. Sorry, I, I talked over that for you there, mm. Tamara. Do you want to start? Can we start that one again? Do you want to explain what an EFP does? Yeah, explosive form projectile. Yeah, it's a hot metal. It's a copper plate. Um, and then that gets pushed with the explosives behind it. And it's packaged in a cylindrical uh, tube or container. And so you have this conical-shaped uh, copper and explosives behind it. It's primed from the rear. And then when it shoots out, uh, it envelops on itself and then forms a hot metal uh, copper uh, projectile and it rips through everything there's nothing that can stop that stuff yeah, yeah any armor at the time that anybody was using it wasn't stopped it was going right through that stuff and usually by the time it triggered on the front of the vehicle uh front of the vehicle if it was um and they were trying that at the time they were trying uh timers uh command detonated stuff and then trips on uh uh, passive infrared or red, uh, you break a beam and it goes off. All right, so those are the various different ways that you can detonate. We've seen the Palestinians use that Shawaz device to rig them up for booby traps inside a house um, and then to detonate them remotely. Um, that fighter that we just saw in that video is, uh, is remotely detonating um, that and you can do it with very basic uh they can do it with cell phones they can do it with um they, they've been calling um the the palestinians have been calling them television bombs because they're remotely dedicated uh detonated using uh like a channel changer it's a very I, I wondered what they meant by uh a television bombs I, I guess that that explains it then yeah there's no i don't there's no translation for it uh it's uh but yeah, so that's 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 a weapon that has been introduced um, in the second half of this war. And when we see what that Delta Force soldier, he's talking about that from Iraq. Um, they were they were introduced in Iraq in a in a uh, sort of a large scale manner. Um, but very um, the the Palestinian resistance, of course, has reverse engineered and um, really perfected these weapons. So when you see um, a bomb go off, people saw on that previous clip, the tank pulls forward, which might look like the tank is getting away from the main part of that explosion. But as that Delta Force soldier described, it's actually doing the opposite. It's giving room for that explosively formed projectile to aim itself at the door of the tank, inside which are the crew. And so we, uh, we saw the Israelis admit to the most deadly weekend. They lost 25 soldiers this weekend. They usually just say in the north uh, or in Khan Yunus, um, but they don't tell us where these soldiers were killed. Um, but you can uh, imagine um, that at least a few of them were there because all that has to happen with an armored vehicle is for it to pierce. Um, you don't have to explode the entire vehicle um, for it to be deadly because it pierces the armor and any piece that pierces the armor um, becomes uh, a hot piece of metal that's flying around inside what is effectively a bathtub that the soldiers are sitting in um, that protects them from uh, explosions underneath the tank. So if it's pierced above that um, we're looking for sure at serious casualties from that. And that that 
um, to deliver that bomb by hand, I think social media kind of was was uh, very impressed by that. And when you when you juxtapose that with um, the footage that we saw um, coming out the other day from the president of Israel, uh, President Herzog was shown on the Gaza border using a Sharpie marker and writing messages on 155 millimeter shells that are then fired into Gaza. Um, killing, as we know, more than 20,000 uh, civilians have been killed at this point. The juxtaposition between this guy hand placing this device in the most vulnerable spot. He could have put that anywhere. He could have put it on the side and turned and ran. But he goes up and uh, executes his mission right to the final moment of the mission. He doesn't pull away two minutes early, which still would have made um, an impressive spectacle. Um, he's carrying out his mission. And then as Abu Obeda, the spokesperson for the Qassam Brigades, has said repeatedly throughout this war, these fighters are returning home to their bases to report on these operations. These are not John, John the, the factor here that I think the Israelis don't can't contend with is, is the bravery, is the courage. Because to be able to, you know, there are weapons that are made that are designed to hit a tank or an armored vehicle from a distance in order to keep the soldiers who are firing those weapons safe. And the defensive systems of the tanks also depend on that distance. I think you were talking about this last time with the trophy system. The trophy system needs that distance in order to function. Uh, and it's also it's assumed that nobody is going to get that close to a tank, right? Nobody's going to be that crazy to do that. But the Palestinians are able to defeat these tanks because they're willing to violate that assumption that nobody is going to walk right up to a tank in the middle of a battlefield. And the same, I know we're going to talk about this later, goes for the RPGs because, again they are doing that from such close range. The one thing I want to say also that I thought about when I saw this picture of Isaac Herzog, the president of Israel, who of course in the in the West is portrayed as this peace-loving figure, almost the contrast to Benjamin Netanyahu, is I thought about our dear friend Rifat uh, Al-Ar'ir, who in one of his first appearances on our live stream talked about how his only weapon was the Expo marker, the markers he used to highlight and make notes in the books he loved so much. And, and just look at all the different things you can do with a, a marker. You can use it to enlighten people, uh, as Rifat did, or you can use it to send a message of death in this most horrific and disgusting way by Isaac Herzog. And the fact that there's just even no discussion about that, that that's just normal because the Israelis actually do this all the time. They did it back in 2006 um, in the war in Lebanon and they got little kids from right. Northern Israel to write on them like as part of a school project. It's like, it's totally demented. It's uh, really unbelievable. Um, and so the Shawaz device showed this unbelievable courage. And when you said they, that, they, that, 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 that it's crazy to get that close to a tank, Nobody in the world should know better than the Israelis that the Palestinians get close to their tanks. I lived in Janine for a number of years and was on the streets with the kids, uh, shout out Badges, 
who used to climb on top of the tank and attempt to pull the gun off the top of the tank, riding through Janine on top of the tank. And when I first got there and saw this and also believed at that time that it was crazy, and he hopped off the tank as the tank drove off, and, and I said, what are you what are you doing like i don't even know if i said it eloquently i just said like what are you doing that is insane and he just looked at me and he said I'm trying to take the gun off like what do you think i'm doing and then just like carried on with his activity so the israelis they policed the west bank for um you know for the entire second intifada fighting against kids with stones who were trying to climb on their tanks um and get closer to their tanks this a lot of this knowledge uh, of how you can move around a tank was actually uh, learned by children that were fighting in their communities, in their refugee camps um, on a daily basis. And, and as they, they saw that, in fact, the closer you are to the tank, actually the safer you are, which is what the kids would explain to me over the first few days uh, in the field to keep me alive, essentially. Um, is that in that space around the tank, the tank has the least capability um, in that close distance. So that fighter could have used, in that Gaza City example, he could have used a Yassin uh, RPG that we talked about. He could have positioned himself right behind the door and blasted it. But they decided uh, on the ground that a more effective weapon would be to hand deliver uh, what they call a Shawaz uh, EFP, and aim it at the back door of the tank, but not just aim it at the back door of the tank, place it on the tread at the back of the tank to disable the tank um, so that it cannot move. And um, then the possibility comes, um, let's, let's watch it one more time. From, from across the street, there's tanks all through the neighborhood, there's drones in the air constantly. He goes right for safety, which is again, something that, I'm not sure how much in Gaza they have experienced that that kid that's planting that device. I don't think he was even old enough to know when there was tanks uh, operating inside um, Gaza. But he operates safely, moving out of the way immediately. And then if we can see here, he's lying down on the ground. That's why they put the arrow there, because they want you to see that he's completing his mission to such a degree that he's lying down underneath the tank to place it. And that's a direct hit. Um, and that, and he goes back to the base. That's him getting away. And that's him getting away. Nice, good freeze frame there, Tamara. Yeah. That's him getting away from the blast. Um, yeah, green triangle wow. for Hamas militant. Um, yeah. And we'll talk more about this with Ali later on, because there's a video from today that talks about this. But this kind of, that green arrow, um, you know, green for Hamas, like that, that kind of subtlety that they're putting into these videos, communicating with the world mm. um, without saying a word. Um, it's just really remarkable. But that green triangle is a really heroic moment. So social media was very, was, was uh, awe-inspired by this um, and, and couldn't believe that people would do this. But, but let's show Tamara from 2014 in the 2014 war, um, they, the Palestinian uh, Nukba commandos, the elite um, frogmen, um, carried out an attack in uh, July of 2014 on Zakim Beach that originally the Israelis said 
um, that they had uh, repelled the attack by um, the, the frogmen who came from the sea in scuba gear uh, up onto the shore. Um, and so they come up onto the shore. If that video doesn't load, I can read the, the text from uh, the description from the Israeli media. Um, so this was the introduction to the world of Qassam's frogmen, the Nukba elite forces um, that became uh, famous. Um, so this is just north of the northwest corner of the Gaza Strip. And in July, the 2014 war, uh, the 51-day war, um, the Israelis had said that these frogmen had attacked. You can see them here coming out of the water, carrying explosives out of the water, um, hiding in the berms here along the, the shoreline and attempting to move up to an army base, which is on the corner, uh, is on the coast uh, in Zakim, just north of the, um, the border. And this base was overrun again on October 7th. Um, and the soldiers and officers in the base were killed. So this, so this attack in July, the Israelis told the world it was repelled. Um, and then in December, this video was released. And you could see the fighters moving up. This is an Israeli camera. That's them moving across the road. Um, and a tank shows up. The, the description of the video um, says the video opens with a military map looking at the code names of the locations and the surveillance cameras. So this is leaked from the Israelis. You can see the fighters there coming from the sea, moving through those berms um, and attacking a, a military base. They had to stop in the weeds there and take off their flippers and their wetsuits um, and to get into their gear. They're under fire there. Um, you can see the fire um, all around them there, um, but they make it through. And now you can see in that video, they're up on the berm beside the road, preparing their um, devices. They're throwing grenades uh, up on the road. And here comes the tank um, to try to get them. Again, we've taken the audio out so that we don't um, get these uh, videos taken down. The same reason we describe them as jelly beans, just uh, in the in the hopes that these videos won't get taken down. And this um, was 2014. This is 2014. To reiterate, so this yeah. is to reiterate. This is uh, this has happened before. Is the point of this story? This unbelievable courage when the resistance didn't have the same uh, devices that they have now. Um, so th this is the description from, from the Israeli press. After the fighters cross the road and take cover in the depression in the sand, IDF forces engage them from the east. A Merkava tank and a bulldozer arrive as well. And one of the, one, they say terrorists, one of the Qassam frogmen runs up to the tank and hangs explosives on it. And on the uh, Israeli audio, they shout out in Hebrew, number two, number two, he's on your tank. He's on your tank. Drive. Here he goes. He literally hangs it on the tank. That's the tank barrel that you see. Then he gets back. He goes back under cover there. And the tank, the explosives of detonates, having to swim with the explosive meant that they didn't, they weren't able to bring a Shawaz with them. Um, but look at them fighting right here, right in front of the tank, right from the berm. Um, and so just wanted to show that to people um, that, that this is before, this has happened before. This is part of a tactical, this is part of their tactical approach. Look at them fighting within the, the zone of the tank there. 
Um, and of course, getting hit by helicopters, because by this point, they call in helicopter gunships um, and they go back to the sea. After bombing the tank, um, they make it all the way across. Uh, unfortunately, this operation uh, did amount to a martyrdom mission, um, but just incredible courage um, that those fighters, and to repeat, those were frogmen that entered from the sea, came up underwater with explosives, made it all the way across this open space, up to the base, uh, and, and attacked them. And then if we want to just show one more, uh, Tamara, if we could just show um, the, the night after uh, the, is the footage of Gaza City hanging the Shawaz on the tank, um, let's go to the footage from the IDF. The IDF released this. You can see there another guy right beside a tank hanging an explosive, attempting to hang an explosive on the side of the tank. This is IDF drone footage that they released to show that um, that they can use close air support. This is what the Israelis said. The way that close air support works with the ground forces. Um, and you can see that they're showing a fighter right beside the tank attempting to hang explosives on it. And the Israeli response, of course, is not to dismount from their tank where they outnumber the fighters by a considerable margin. They also have uh, escorts for those armored vehicles. So there could have been, um, you know, as many as 25 soldiers descend on that area uh, and fight, but they don't. They stay in the tank, they call in air support, and the Israeli video shows them blowing up half the neighborhood. Um, trying to find these two guys, but they, they, the Israelis claim that they uh, killed the Palestinian fighters. But I didn't see that in it's, the video. Yeah, I cut that out of the video because it's not clear that they cut the video. They spliced the video and showed them bombing from the air. Something there's yeah, no connection to it being correct. those fighters. That, that's what I mean. Even even the full version that they that the Israeli army release doesn't show definitively that they uh, hit those two uh, brave fighters. And that's the closest that we get to seeing Palestinian fighters in Israeli videos. But look at that. He's right up beside the tank doing the same thing. So it's not just one guy who's impassioned or maybe particularly angry or has some particular level of courage. Um, this is a fighting force that's prepared to fight this type of war. And that's one of the tactics that they're using. Um, and we've and seen they, that they use, effectively. They use this, the, these tactics, John. We, we've seen it in video after video after video, uh, whether it's the, the Shawad bombs, bombs that they're using, like the, the expo, expo, explosively formed penetrators, whether it's the RPGs, the Yassin 105, as they call it, or whether it is the sniper rifle or, uh, or landmines, explosives that they set in a fixed position and then detonate, there's a consistency that indicates a very high level of training and consistent training across the board. Because, as you say, it's not just one or two individual, but... Video after video, and I think we're going to see some RPG rockets uh, in some of the upcoming videos. But I've been reading about these RPGs, John, uh, and they're incredible weapons invented by the Soviet Union, perfected by the Soviet Union, and then made in in a number of countries. The point is 
they are they are simple they're available but it still takes an enormous amount of skill to use them in in, in yes. a second uh, well actually that's even better than that ali they took those two weapons from the soviet union the rpg2 and the rpg7 and they reverse engineered them and joined them into one weapon um, so that they could get the benefits of the one and the benefits of the other one being simple um, and one being the ability to mass produce them. And then the Palestinians themselves are manufacturing these um, in small underground um, facilities. Um, and they've clearly been at this for the last, um, you know, the, the Yassin program um, itself, the Yassin program started in 2003. So it's a 19 year old weapons program. Is that right? 20, what year is it? 20 year old <laughs> weapons program. Um, uh, we've seen the Al Ghul sniper rifle that we're going to talk about later. Um, that's an 11 year project. The Qassam rockets, those began just after the beginning of the second intifada in 2000, 2001. Um, so the rocket program is 22, 23 years old. Um, and so you see a consistent dedication to this fight that's happening right now. This is not uh, a makeshift uh, response. This defense of Gaza has been planned for decades, and now they actually have the capacity, the manufacturing capacity, to enable uh, an army to fight back and defend their communities in such a way that Israel is already saying, um, they're already starting to leak out, okay, we're not going to defeat Hamas totally, um, you know, starting to, to calibrate a little bit of those, we're going to wipe out Hamas and then de-radicalize the Gaza Strip after making everybody uh, orphans and driving them out of their houses. You know, this kind of ridiculous talk that we spent, we had to deal with for weeks of this war, um, that's just clearly not true. The Palestinians are able to fight this battle um, and they waited until the point in the struggle that they could fight that battle. Because what we're seeing with all of this materiel that they've created is that they could have perhaps fought um, a smaller scale battle at previous times in the last number of years um, and clearly chose not to until they were ready and um, prepared. And during that time, they're training their fighters consistently every day. And we've seen that because of October 7th, um, some of the Israeli intelligence people talk about how they were watching them train uh, in the open air in Gaza for years before the attack and all the way down to um, watching them train by breaching uh, uh, mock-ups of the wall itself. Um, so they've been training. They trained their fighters to fire um, the RPG. Um, they built the RPGs themselves to handle the warheads that are reverse engineered. So they find something like a Soviet weapon that is useful, uh, simple, um, you know, like the AK-47 doesn't break down like Western weapons often do, doesn't jam. Um, everybody can use them and then distributed those um, to trained fighters in large numbers. And that's what's made um, this battle for Israel. Um, you know, Israel was, I'm sure, expecting to just uh, fight for a couple months and then withdraw, but they have absolutely nothing to show for the fight 
other than the massacre of civilians. And so, so now they're in a place where they're trying to talk about uh, a next phase of the war where it's going to be perhaps slightly less intense. Um, but they're not talking about uh, an end game to the fight with Qassam because Qassam is more capable today. And we can see it from their resistance reports right. um, that they're more capable of fighting today than at any point. And so let's move to the to the second section here. And we're going to talk about um, this concept that the IDF uh, proposed last week to its people in Hebrew. You talked about it, Ali, that they had um, complete operational control. That was the word that they used in Hebrew, complete operational control. Absol and absolute. Absolute mm -hmm. operational control. <laughs> Even stronger word. Absolute right. operation control. So, yeah. so, and then we watch these videos um, from Shujai and Jabalia. Those were the two areas that they said they had absolute operational control. Um, these are the two, and and this is Saraya Al Qud. So this is not Qassam. This is Islamic Jihad. Um, walking. We talked about them walking through walls. Um, this is them walking through buildings from neighboring buildings climbing through the buildings um, which is something that they know because they live in this neighborhood um, and one of the things about the islamic jihad videos is that they the sarai al-quds uh, is the name of their armed wing they follow a little longer with their shots and so you can actually see these guys navigating between the alley surprise is not barefoot though to get into position, to create a sniper's position. So at this point, nobody's been in a window um, because they came in through the back of the house. That the fact that they have an entire unit of soldiers looking at these buildings, the sniper is able to bring his Dragunov rifle into position without ever going to a window and picks them off one by one. Um, and that's the kind of fight that you see um, when you don't is have that a single shot right. rifle, John, is that that sniper? Yeah. It is yeah. a single. So, uh, but what's uh, what's interesting because you point out they do not go right up to the window. The the Sarai al Quds fighters, Sarai al Quds, of course, being the military wing of Islamic Jihad, the equivalent of Qas as Qassam is to Hamas, Sarai al Quds is to Palestinian Islamic Jihad. But what we often see, I think we'll see this in some of the other videos, is the Israelis sit right in the window. And that's because well, it's like they've never been trained before. Yeah. Yeah. They move they move in a group. Yeah. They they're not they they're used to having stones. Themselves. Right, right, right. No, that's it. Yeah. yeah. They're used to having stones. Sorry to interrupt you, Nora. They're no, they're no, used no. to having stones thrown at them by kids. They're used to shooting people who didn't have anything to do with it on the street. They're not ready for a trained uh, for a trained force that's been studying, right. not only just practicing, but also studying the theory of fighting um, and what you're trying to achieve. And look at passing the weapons through this alleyway, climbing over the alley um, and showing this is like whatever the opposite of absolute <laughs> operational right. control is when you have fighters climbing through the buildings in order to get better shots at your soldiers. Um, so what we're seeing is Palestinians with absolute uh, operational control over these neighborhoods and moving through the walls in these ways. Mm -hmm. um, 
Walking uh, through the walls. Walking through great. the walls, which the Israelis in 2002, uh, their uh, uh, postmodern philosopher department um, made this this thing like in the battle uh, of um, uh, the 2002 battles that they were really pinned down in the places like the old city of Nablus uh, or in Janin. And so these IDF uh, philosophers said, you know, like maybe maybe we need to look at things differently. We don't, we need, we don't need to look at a house as a house or a wall as a wall. They said, we can reinvent the, the architecture. That was their, their terminology. We can reimagine the architecture. And they were saying, you know, we would blow through the walls and do all these things that Palestinians have already done and don't have postmodern philosophers describing. Um, but reimagining the landscape was the way the Israelis talked about it. Um, and I don't know how much more reimagining you can do than this kind of movement um, um, through that area. And so is there, is, is there, I'm not sure if we have the second one from Shajaiya, um, but we have one from today, uh, or sorry, we have Jabalia. So this is Jabalia. They're able to fight uh, in Jabalia with absolute operational control. They don't even have operational control over the building next door to them. And this is a force uh, getting hit by a thermobaric grenade. And uh -huh. this is a shot of a, of their tank being dragged away from Jabalia, where they say they have operational control. Um, and they're being hit literally from the next building and dragging their gear uh, away. And so that's Jabalia. And, and again, la last time we did see the other footage of them having to tow disabled tanks out of, uh, I don't remember which, which, which neighborhood it was in, but you know, this is now a, presumably a common scene of them having to tow their junk out of Gaza. And see, he hits, he hits that window. He hits that window from next door. So again, they're not only putting themselves in position to do this, but they're also, they have military acumen when it comes down to the moment. They're hitting their shot. They're pointing at the window they're aiming at and they're hitting the shot. Um, and, and if anything, they're better at it now as the war has gone on because these fighters are learning incredible amounts that you could never, never train for. Um, this is the kind of stuff that is that you learn in battle um, and that this is I mean, this is in the broader picture. This is the kind of stuff that makes it really hard to see going back to a world before October 7th, because you not only have the hundreds of widow, uh, you know, uh, orphaned children uh, in Gaza, people who have watched this horror happen in front of them. But you also have tens of thousands, literally, of skilled fighters who now have been fighting uh, for 55 days of a ground war. And what happens the day that that's over? Is the implication that without a, a prisoner exchange or without um, some kind of a, a, a trajectory for, for a just peace for, for Palestinians, that these tens of thousands of fighters are going to uh, accept not fighting for an indefinite period of time when they're um, when their people are being attacked all over like they're being attacked in Janine today um, and Janine doesn't have the West Bank doesn't have the weapons capacity or the training 
um, that the Gaza Strip has been allowed since 2005 when um, the Palestinian resistance drove the Israelis out of Gaza in 2005 and allowed for the development of this weapons industry that had begun before, but after 2005 can really become entrenched. The tunnel network becomes entrenched. I mean, we're on day 80 something now. We haven't even really talked about the tunnels because they haven't, right. the Israelis haven't even begun that process. There's an entire architecture underneath the ground that the Israelis call the metro uh, because it's as big as some uh, metropolis subway stations, uh, subway uh, networks. They haven't even touched that. They're fighting on the outside levels against guerrilla tactics using uh, weapons that everybody in the world has. John, Admittedly, it, it strikes, uh, it strikes yeah. me, though, that we're looking at something. I mean, you, you're, you tell me if I'm wrong, but we've seen conventional war in, you know, in different places in the world. And we've seen guerrilla war that I, I've seen a lot of comparisons between the tactics of the Palestinian resistance and the Viet Cong. And that's probably one of the very close parallels, including the tunnel network and the ability to move like ghosts, basically. The Americans, too, used to talk about we're fighting ghosts in Vietnam. They could never see them coming. And yet they were able to inflict uh, severe pain on the uh, vastly equipped American invaders who, despite dropping million, literally millions of tons of bombs on Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, were unable to defeat the resistance there. But I wonder, listening to you and watching these videos, if we're seeing something new here, because Hassam... Oh, the Palestinian resistance, not just Qassam, but that being the main, the largest group, presumably, are organized in a sense like a state, like a conventional army in terms of their, their order of battle, the fact that they have different brigades and divisions that cover different parts of Gaza, the fact that there is standardization of their weapon systems, of their training. Presumably, they have very effective uh, command and control because we can see that they are maintaining that up to this minute. So they have a lot of aspects or characteristics of a conventional army, a conventional military, but they fight like guerrillas. Is that uh, is that is there anything to that, or is that also true of past guerrilla armies? I mean, I think that like to find an example of a war like this, where you have an entrenched, um, dug-in population that prepared for the fight for this long. I mean, the Israelis are very quick to say that there's no um, no analogy um, to it, because even um, even the way that the tunnels were used in Vietnam was uh, was a lot more defensive. Um, defensive tunnels. Um, you can read in the Israeli um, field reports, they're talking about um, nine men uh, ambushes from three separate tunnels on one unit. So Palestinians are using three separate attack tunnels to carry out a single ambush of the Israelis. And they're getting back and reporting on this um, because there's no way for them to advance and clear any kind of territory. Um, and that's what the Americans ultimately were doing in Vietnam was they just completely like they napalmed the villages, completely destroyed everything that was on the top and then gassed underneath the tunnels. Um, the, we're, we're not sure yet. We don't know if the Palestinians have um, 
continuity, uh, contiguity uh, between the, the the tunnel networks. Um, does Gaza City connect to Khan Yunus? We we don't know that, and the Israelis don't know that yet um, um, either. Yeah. But yes, the structure of the force has been created as um, you know a hybrid army, as set up as an army. Um, with, with, like you said, set up separate divisions, def separate commands in each area. And we know from the fight um, that's been happening um, that these commanders have been in charge of these positions for years, decades in some cases, um, some of these commanders. Um, so they're not constantly promoted up a chain to become, um, you know, uh, cushy, uh, bosses, they're, they're, feel, they're battalion commanders on the ground in these areas that are leading this area. Um, you know, Wissam Farhat was leading the Shujaia battalion before he was assassinated. He was leading it consistently for 14 years. Um, uh, same with Ahmed Gandur, who was the northern commander for Qassam, who was killed. Um, he, the Israelis have been trying to kill him since 2002. They had five different attempts at him. You know, they talk about uh, nine different attempts at Mohammed Dayef, the, the, the commander of the Qassam Brigades. So they've been trying to get these guys for a long time, but they have had the ability to stay within their units, training those forces to fight contiguously within these uh so between Shujaia and Jabalia which are side by side and for the Israelis to tell their people that they have operational control over Shujaia and Jabalia is that's them telling their people the two places that they know in Gaza um, because they got smoked there in the past the set the first intifada started in Jabalia um and of course like if you were to ask Rafat about the Battle uh, of Shujaia, if you, you know, said, what do you remember about the Battle of Shujaia? Rafat would say, which Battle of Shujaia, mm. right? Because there was uh, a Battle of Shujaia in 1987. Um, there was a Battle of Shujaia in 2014 that the Israelis uh, are still have ghosts of. And now the most fierce fighting in this war has been in Jabalia and Shujaia. Shujaia is where the Golani Brigade um, experience their commander team, as they call it, a team of commanders who got triple ambushed. They got ambushed in a building. They called for reinforcements. The commander's team sent in reinforcements. They got hit too. So now it's a double ambush. And Israelis report on the communications coming between those ambushed and calling out to the APCs that we see the guys not outside of the armored vehicles, calling to the armored vehicles saying, get out of your vehicles and come in and help us. And they came in and helped them and they got smoked too. So triple ambushes, um, that killed nine um, uh, from the Golani Brigade just in that few minutes, two senior commanders, a lieutenant colonel and a colonel, um, two of the most senior commanders to be killed in battle in Israel in 50 years. Um, and so you're saying you have operational control over this area. Of course, Shujai absolute, is also where they, they massacred their control. own absolute operation. Not, not, yeah, absolute operation control. But that reminds me also just, just uh, two things uh, that I listened to over the weekend. One was uh, an interview. This was on an Indian YouTube channel of all, all uh, things, somewhat pro-Israeli from the sense I got. But it was a uh, an interview with Ephraim Halevi, the former head of the Mossad. And he said very bluntly in that interview that 
uh, Israel completely underestimated the fighting capabilities of the Palestinian resistance. And he also said that he didn't think Israel would succeed in its goals in this war. That's a former head of the Mossad, Israel's mm -hmm. notorious spy agency. And also Dan Halutz, the former Israeli army chief of staff, who was the chief of staff, I believe, during the uh, war with Lebanon, the last war with That's Lebanon, right. also said that Israel would not win this war. And he so was that, the one who declared victory in Lebanon, like two days into the war. Right. And we all know what happened next. And for those who don't, Israel lost. But and um, so, yeah, just one more thing about when you were saying Vietnam, uh, Ali, because, yeah, they are starting to say that they're losing. And in Vietnam, when the Americans were losing, um, they did they when their commanders would tell them to go patrol in the elephant grass and the fighters, the American fighters said, no way, it's too dangerous. We don't want to do these operations. The guerrillas just kill us every time we go into these areas, um, which is the equivalent of getting out of your tanks uh, in Israeli uh, vernacular that, that gave rise to this uh, concept called fragging, where the fighters of their own force would grenade their commanders and basically what they would do is they would put a grenade in their tent at night with a pin in it that said you know if you send us into the elephant grass one more time this pin will be taken out of the of the grenade um, and that kind of dis um, uh, discord within the force uh, made it very difficult for the americans to fight yesterday the golani uh, brigade removed a company commander who told his fighters to go into a house. And they said, I'm not going into that house because of the booby traps that we've seen everywhere. Um, and there was a battle, a fight between the, um, the, the commander, the company commander and his soldiers about going into this house. And the uh, Israeli army sided with the soldiers who were too scared to go into the house. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you could see these kind of things um, that these ambushes are in the heads of Israeli soldiers yeah. um, and the, the complexity of the ambushes that we've seen in these videos. We could show these videos. We could have a four hour show just showing videos, the, the detailed ambushes setting up well, uh, Israeli some, soldiers. Let's show some yeah. more, John. Yeah, so let's show today. So this is from today, have, guys. We, we get through the ones we have in, uh, in the time we have left. Yeah, this let's one came this one out. Today. Uh, just before we started our live stream. So yeah, set this up for us, John. Yeah, well, I actually haven't seen this because uh, we were <laughs> yeah, just I, about I, to go on I here. watched it once. Uh, I usually like to watch them repeatedly. So that's an but, elevated uh, firing uh, position hitting that uh, tank. That clearly is a hit. Um, and again, we're seeing um, Yassin's um, that were built by Gaza. Every weapon we're seeing is built in Gaza. And the Yassin, again, this is basically a, a modified reverse engineered RPG-7. And the That's point right. about the RPG-7, we should pause it there for a second. Yeah, yeah let's pause, pause that if we can. We'll come back to this. But the, the thing about the RPG-7 is that if you're using it at a very long range, the Israelis can defend against it. Their, their trophy system or, or whatever it is can kick in. But again, it's the courage of the fighters that they're getting within the close range that this very simple weapon, I mean, well-designed weapon, but relatively simple and available. And the, light. And light. 
is able to defeat a multi-million dollar Merkava tank because of the willingness of the fighters to get that up close and personal. And yeah. this appears to be, I'm not exactly sure what we're looking at. Is this a blackboard or a piece of armor? I'm not sure exactly, it's but they say, Kata'ib al-Qassam, Tufan al-Aqsa, which is, so the Qassam brigades, and then Tufan al-Aqsa, the, um, the uh, name of the operation, Al-Aqsa Flood. And they say, Tam Tadbir Thalas Aliyat, where I think it says Dabbaba, it's not very clear. Well, Ishtibak Ma'ajunud Fi Hatha Al, I can't quite see the last word on my screen. It's very small, maybe in this in this place. But um, the the point is they are, I don't know if this is a reference to the Israelis when they write on the blackboards in the school they occupy or whether this was their uh, just way of answering back or if this is written on a piece of destroyed Israeli armor. But they also use the hashtag, the hashtag to final Aqsa. So it, to me, this, this shows how connected these Qassam fighters in the field are to the audience that they are speaking to with these videos and that they're even thinking about that when they're in the field, which is mm. just absolutely incredible. And and Tamara um, says that the last word that is kind of blurry yeah. says albayt yeah. uh, from this house. Yeah. Yeah, that, I see that now. I mean, had yeah. albayt. So yeah. this is in Shijayir. Are they saying that that's the house that hit uh, yeah. the APC? Because that's where the burning APC was. And, but it, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. We'll, we'll sort that out and get it to you for next show, guys. Because this is we're watching this live uh, ourselves. So, and there you get secondary explosions, if I'm correct, which is always a, a nice way of knowing that they set something big off. Yeah. So the the the, the thing about the RPG seven uh, models is that they're light, and you can carry them, and you can move. Um, deftly with them rather than um, guided anti-tank yeah. weapons. And um, here we have some guys who are uh, yeah, you know, soldiers doing in the, the classic Israeli thing of being in the window. Yeah. I've been calling them on my Twitter feed. They're a, they're a separate kind of video called Soldier in a Window, which is just a totally absurd thing, and it's still happening. Um, but when we get to the next section, uh, we'll see they've made uh, some additions uh, to this. Again, so they're saying they have a total, what was it? Standing Absolute in a group operational again. control. And they're standing in a group <laughs> inside a house. Because I guess well, maybe, maybe they think they, they have control. They think mm. they have control. They've been told, yeah. And then this, just pause it for a second. They say, مقتل وإصابة عشرة من جنود وضباط العدو إثر استهدافهم بقذيفة مضادة للأفراد. So they say, the killing and injuring of 10 enemy soldiers um, uh, when they were hit with a uh, an anti-personnel uh, weapon, anti-personnel grenade or rocket. And right, so the, the, war, yeah. the RPG-7 has multiple warheads that it fires, and the Palestinians have made ones. They've made a thermobaric one, which is for buildings, that is a, a fuel explosion uh, warhead. We've seen the Yassin um, 105, is the tandem charge one that we described on an earlier show where it explodes twice to try to get around the reactive armor um, that's on the tanks or even through the trophy system. Uh, 
in the tanks. And they also have a fragmentation grenade, um, which, um, which explodes um, and creates uh, fragments that are, so that would be the anti-personnel one. Um, uh, we, we have um, another video, the, the house with the curtains. Um, do we, so yeah. this is, a, yeah, this is more yeah, windows. Let's do that one. More windows. More windows. So this is the attempt by the Israelis here. So they're talking, they're describing that. What you're seeing is the thermobaric one. They're painted that tan color. So you see, we see the introduction of <laughs> curtains. And then you see they've pointed out that sniper hole. And you can see this, the, the snipers in those window positions. Having and they've added curtains because they never had curtains before. So now they're trying to protect themselves with curtains, which just tells everybody that they're in that room. Uh, and now they're not in that room. It, it, and that is, again, these are these are casualties. That's a thermobaric grenade. What you're seeing is a fuel explosion going off inside that and building. That, and that, uh, that little Nobody caption they added that. said, uh, uh, soldier burning. So the Yeah, they don't get out of that. They don't get out of that scene. And then at the end of this clip, they'll, um, they show captured weaponry um, when they've gone up. Um, to mm. that building again saying they have absolute operational control they don't even have it over a building and you can see their weapons there's um there's their those M4. weapons are badly burned you could badly burned from, yeah, melted so, even though they're metal weapons that's yeah. a light that's a light or actually i think that might be a sniper rifle with a tripod but the one above it is um that's a small machine gun there mm. yeah uh, light light machine gun so yeah, you can see on those that they're burnt and, and warped. Uh, do, do the three red triangles there mean that they that they're saying that was three kills? Is that? I think that they're saying a three wep the three different weapons. But yeah. yeah, there's at least three in that window that they put uh, triangles for. Yeah. So there's oh. three fighters' guns. One had a sniper rifle with a tripod. One was working the belt-fed uh, light machine gun that you see there, and then the the bottom one is just the standard issue uh, wow. M4. Do we know where that was? I. That's a good image there of the yeah. RPG. Oh, I'm sorry, Nora. No, no. I, yeah, um, I, they yeah. say at the beginning. I don't remember what it yeah. what, what what this location. This is the rest of the Gaza City video. Okay. Uh, this the, this is the yeah. video, the same video that starts with the Shawaz heroism, um, finishes with this. So this is in one video they show us presumably multiple kills inside the tank, and yeah. then this is. Oh. This is at least three in this building yeah. here. Go back to that image. See that, with that the, triangle? Uh, where, yeah, just pause it there with the guy. Yeah, just because this is such a good shot of the RPG rocket that, that, that this is the so-called tandem. You can see, John, I've been studying, uh, yeah. not trying to compete with you, but just because just I like to understand what we're looking at. No, but no, yeah, is, that, that's so. That's the same shaped uh, warhead as the 105 that they fire at the tanks, um, but they fill it uh, with fuel. So it's a the same casing, and that's yeah. why it's the same size um, in the same but, casing, um, just this for has, ease of production. Yeah, but this this is also typically the shape of the anti-tank warhead, where you've got the smaller bulge at the tip, which is the smaller charge which defeats 
the arm, the reactive armor, the so-called reactive armor, some of these tanks have, um, you can see that they sometimes have these boxes hanging off them that actually explode. It's a little bit like the airbag in your car. How does the airbag work when, if heaven forbid, you get in an accident, the airbag explodes and it pushes you back so that you don't go, you know, it counteracts the force. And the reactive armor does the same. It's an explosion that that counteracts the incoming warhead. So the first little charge on that at the tip defeats the reactive armor, and then the second bigger bulge contains, and this is also, John, is this also an explosively shaped penetrator? It, it, it also creates a jet of molten metal that goes through the, uh, the armor and can get through very thick armor. There's actually something called the Tank Museum, which is in, in the UK, uh, which does these educational videos. And they have one about the RPG, which is uh, really interesting and explains how this, because, you know, people look at this with disbelief and they say, how can this very dinky looking weapon get through the armor of a Merkava tank or an Abrams tank? And that's how it's that this is why I needed to go in depth into this because I wanted to understand is what I'm seeing real? Can this weapon really penetrate through, you know, uh, dozens of centimeters of armor? And the answer is yes, it can, Hundreds, yeah. especially if it is used at close <clears throat> range. And the close range is the thing that we see time and again in this video because of the willingness of these fighters to risk their lives and get up close to those tanks. So that was my own little uh, John impression on the RPG. <laughs> no, but all good, all good stuff. I actually yeah. think that that, that the, <laughs> seeing the thermobaric grenade in the same um, kit or like in the same uh, as the Yassin 105, I believe is just for ease in production, that they have the molded casting already for that. And so they're using it in multiple ways, which is just ingenious. Um, and if you had your own uh, weapons manufacturing industry that wasn't underground or being attacked, um, you might form those differently because the the like a a, a thermobaric grenade that was made by the Russians doesn't have that double tip. It just has one sort of like flare out of it. So uh, I believe that what we're seeing, and again, we're going to have to wait for the documentaries because we don't have the weapon specs on these kind of things. People are trying to put it together in real time. People in the comments say it doesn't work, but no soldier says it doesn't work. Uh, the soldiers, especially people that fought in Iraq, know that the tandem charged uh, warheads definitely penetrate armor and the Shawaz for yeah. sure. The Shawaz penetrates yeah. up to 65 centimeters, 650 millimeters of armor, which is the Israelis armor depth size of their armor on their tanks is classified, but um, it's in the, it's in the order of, you know, between 250 millimeters and 600 millimeters. But um, in you, various you know, spots. So if you hit point right is, you spot, don't need to triple. destroy the tank completely. No, you just need to pierce the armor. You just need to, or you just need to destroy the treads, and the thing is a seventy, a seventy well, that's a ton separate one, piece yes. of junk. Mm -hmm. So, the, so when when they went in on October seventh, the Palestinians, uh, Qassam gave their fighters a little cue card that showed uh, the spots on the tanks to hit, and it's one if you can. You hit the door, but then there's a second one, and for sure, and disabling the tread of the tank uh, 
when you're deep, when you're Israeli and you're deep inside Shijaiya, where you claim operational control and you lose the tread on your tank and need an evacuation, it's significant. So there's different ways to target the vehicles um, that, that, that are more than just destroying the entire thing. Um, and even still, like when you talk about piercing armor, all that has to make it through is one tiny little piece of hot metal. And that's effectively a bullet inside of your tank that it can't leave because the piece is once it cools, it can't exit the vehicle. So it bounces around inside the vehicle and it's just a hellscape inside. And the soldiers are terrified of that. And that's why the Israelis build their tanks so thick because the soldiers know it's terrible. And the Americans had to go through that in Iraq because they have crappier armor um, that, that they, that, that that's what they talked about too. The roadside bombs go off and just leave pieces of shrapnel flying around inside this tiny metal casing that you're in. And so they're not even safe in their tanks, but when they're under attack like that, they're definitely not getting out of their tanks. And that's why the Palestinians see that they're not getting out of their tanks. And then they are placing a Shawaz device, uh, mm. a, because it's a more effective weapon than, um, they're choosing their tactics in the moment. Um, and that's the thing about a guerrilla war. When the troops are in more fixed positions for longer, the resistance has the ability to think about how to attack and plan and tactically uh, approach that, that objective. Um, they're able to use their tunnels and figure out where in the tunnel network um, they could best come up to ambush. So all of these things are all intensifying as the war goes on. So they're not degrading the capability of the uh, of the resistance. They're, the resistance is more able to fight every day. The only thing that Israel's degrading is hospitals. They're destroying hospitals, uh, parliament buildings, uh, bakeries. Um, they're not fighting the resistance. And, and they we see on video opportunities to fight the resistance that they're passing. They're and, passing and on remember, that opportunity. John, yeah. we've talked about the Dahia Doctrine before. The Dahia Doctrine, which was invented by, uh, was it uh, Gadi Eisenkart, who was the chief of staff and whose son was killed in Gaza in the last two weeks. But Dahia, of course, uh, is a reference to the southern suburb of Beirut, where the doctrine, the so-called Dahia doctrine, is you attack the civilians, you destroy this yeah. infrastructure. Why? Because what's the, what's the motivation for that? It's because Israel could not fight and defeat Hezbollah. So the idea was make their civilians pay the price, make it so painful that they won't dare to go to war with us. So uh, the Israeli uh, strategy of of massacring civilians, of bombing hospitals, of destroying housing, of inflicting this horrific suffering, the kind of humiliation we're seeing of, of, of people where they're taking men and boys and children and stripping them down to their underwear and humiliating them is because Israel cannot fight soldier to soldier. They are the classic bully that goes after the 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 people they perceive as weaker than them, which is not the Qassam fighters, not the Sarai al-Quds fighters. It's the, 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 the civilian men, the elderly men, the women, the children, the doctors, the hospitals, and so on. This is why Israel goes after them. If Israel could fight 
the Qassam fighters, if they could defeat them, they would. They can't. Yeah, those videos of the mass arrests are awful. Um, but but just to say to that, everybody has their head up in those videos. Everybody's shoulders are back. People are defiant in those videos as well. And so I don't even think the Dahia doctrine uh, works. Uh, this idea that you just make the price so heavy that people uh, won't resist. Um, I, I think no, you're getting the exact racist, opposite. It's, just, it's such a racist idea, John, because think of the mythology of the Blitz, of uh, you know, of London under the Nazi bombs or Coventry under the Nazi bombs, where people talk about. They still talk about this today. They talk about the, the you know, the Blitz, the spirit of the Blitz. Did um, the the Nazi bombing of London and Coventry and the killing of of thousands of civilians did it make British people say, "Oh, we should give up and become Nazis. We should give up and join Hitler." No, they still take pride in the idea that oh, that we stood up, we stood together, we did what it takes. We went down to the uh, London Underground, to the Tube, to to, to shelter and so on. Queen Elizabeth, um, your late Queen John. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, drove a truck during the Blitz. And this is all part of the mythology in which, you know, British people are strengthened by adversity. But mm, Palestinians yeah. or Iraqis or whoever else it is that the Americans are bombing uh, with, you know, their British and uh, other uh, European tails wagging behind will be broken will give up, will surrender. And what we're seeing, you know, for all the horrific pain and suffering that we're seeing from from Gaza and that we're hearing from our friends and colleagues in Gaza who are telling us about the most awful things that you can... I mean, things that the worst horror film uh, ca cannot match. I mean, one of our, our friends, I didn't, I didn't say to him that I was going to, to mention his comments in public, so I won't his name, but what, one of our, uh, our colleagues in Gaza wrote to us this morning that there had been a bombing of right next door to his family's home. Luckily, his family had survived, but their house was badly damaged. And he said, it was filled. This is the thing that I can't get out of my head. It was filled with body parts from the neighbors. Their house was filled with, so they were, they survived but their house was filled with body parts from their neighbors. These are the horrors that Israel is inflicting on people in Gaza, inflicting unbearable suffering. And there isn't a single person in Gaza that says, we want this to continue for another. But there also are not anyone I've seen who's saying we're ready to surrender to this enemy. Right. No, no. never. No. No, um, it, it, let's uh, let's talk about the. I know you, you wanted to say something about the Al Ghul sniper rifles, John, um, and why that's significant. What we're seeing in these jelly beans about the Al Ghuls, right? So we have seen, uh, and we showed uh, um, last episode the factory that manufactured. Um, the Al Ghul sniper rifle, a 50 caliber sniper rifle, um, that again is a reverse engineered uh, version of the um, of an Austrian weapon. 
Um, and so here we're seeing snipers. You can see in this video, you can see their, the, the binoculars shine because they don't have the binoculars covered. So they're exposing themselves um, in these positions um, and are being hit by um, that. That's the afterwards. So the, the snipers were in that position um, and using an Al Ghul sniper rifle, they're able to pick out uh, those particular soldiers and the the weapon and just sort of to bring this whole thing uh, full circle the the weapon the Al Ghul is named after Adnan Al Ghul and he is the Qassam um, uh, commander who who really they call him the father of the arms industry but he was the one who said that more than just get he was a weapons collector his story maybe we'll have more time to to delve into his backstory on uh, on a, a future shows. Uh, but suffice it to say, it's incredible and includes um, before he was on Israel's most wanted list, um, before the first intifada. So before Qassam even existed, before Israel knew that Qassam existed, Adnan al-Ghul was on um, their most wanted list. In September 1987, he killed the uh, IDF military police chief in Gaza when Israel was inside Gaza. And that's an important uh, position the military police during the occupation. So they killed the number one occupation uh, soldier. He killed the number one occupation soldier. And then he killed the uh, the Shabak, the Shin Bet, the, um, the Israeli internal security chief uh, in Gaza as well. And he goes on the lam and leaves Gaza by sea, um, ultimately coming back uh, at after the end of the first intifada, because there's a manhunt for him in Israel for years. Um, and he ends up coming, getting back to Gaza by swimming back into Gaza, carrying a barrel, which is a, one way that Palestinians used to smuggle uh, weaponry into Gaza, was through barrels um, from Egypt. And you float the barrel, sometimes using the current, uh, but in this case, he used it swimming um, and brought back TNT uh, from uh, from abroad and basically gets to work with the Qassam Brigades with uh, Yahya Ayash who's the Qassam uh, bomb maker, uh, gets to work making um, uh, making an, an arms uh, industry within the Gaza Strip. When the second intifada breaks out, uh, Adnan al-Ghul is the one who's told to, um, who's the one who, who tells people that we need to arm our fighters and we need to arm them with uh, weaponry that we can make, not just that we can capture. And so he begins the sort of large scale um, industrial production of things like uh, homemade weapons, uh, like homemade pipe bombs. Um, he begins the Qassam rocket program, which at the time in 2000 was just to fire on the settlements inside Gaza. So the, the distance was like hundreds of feet at first. And now we're at hundreds of kilometers 20 something years later. So Adnan al-Ghul has this sniper rifle named after him um and and it's a nod which is uh, what Qassam does with all of their weapons it's a nod each of their weapons are named after like the yassin uh, is named after ahmed yassin the founder some people have wondered if it was named after the massacre der yassin uh from the 1948 war but it's it's named after the fighters uh, the the fighters that were in the uh, the group like uh, Abdulaziz Rantizi that's the name of their long range missile the R85 R90 I believe they re they got 
additional kilometers um, out of it. So these are long range rockets um, now out of a program when in 2000, um, they were firing them hundreds of feet um, in order to just get them into the settlements to harass the Israelis. And so in this period of time, in this one generation, um, they go from, um, from, from having rockets that barely uh, travel to uh, an entire rocket program that would, would, with uh, getting to what Ali said, um, the Israelis uh, believed that there was 1,300 rocket tunnel exits, like uh, plate buried rocket launchers uh, in the ground. And in an article in Yedio Aronaut in Hebrew uh, yesterday, um, the Israelis were, were saying that they were off uh, by 600% the number of launchers uh, that the Palestinians have. And we can see them firing these rockets from in the ground. Um, and that's why the Israelis can't hit them because they fire and then they go back down into the ground and the Israelis can't, uh, can't stop them, can't knock them out. Um, they can't even find them in a lot of cases. They've shown some videos where they actually like physically stumbled across rocket launchers. Um, but there's nothing in the scale of what the Palestinians have to fight with. So that's why 80 plus days in, the Palestinians are still able to fire rockets on Tel Aviv um, so that Israeli ministers are meeting in bomb shelters in the Knesset. And that's still happening. There doesn't seem to be any indication that any of these weapons are uh, in short supply. We don't see in any of these videos where Palestinians are making a choice to choose between uh, weapons because there maybe isn't enough of the other weapons. So it, it looks to be, um, I think, what we predicted on this show in uh, on October the 9th. The Israelis can't win this war for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them is Palestinian preparation um, and military acumen. Um, one of them is that the population has been besieged for their entire lives, and they're not willing to just surrender as ali said they're not willing to surrender if it means that the or even have a ceasefire if it means that um the blockade doesn't end and it means that the day after the war they go back to being a besieged people with no rights who can't travel to go to university um you know or any any normal thing that people in the world engage in that uh, gaza has been prevented because they were put into warehoused into a ghetto and told to be quiet and for many years they were and now they're not and israel has to make up the stories that started this program in order to justify a genocide because on the face of it the resistance is heroic the the Palestinian civilians, the courage of the civilians to deal with this, um, the scale of this horror, um, you know, it's, it's, it's greater than Israel can defeat. It, it, it's not the kind of war that you can win. And no matter how long they take, they're saying it'll take months. Um, in months, they still won't win this war. And, and one aspect we haven't talked about at all, and I'm just going to mention, but we, we do hope to, to do... Uh, to devote a show to this is the economic aspect. We're talking about the attrition in the military uh, aspect in terms of all these casualties, Israel's hospitals filling up with uh, wounded soldiers and the high number of deaths. And as, as we've spoken out about before, uh, you know, even the announced number of, of deaths and casualties is high. 
and is unsustainable for Israel. But that's if we assume that they're telling the truth. And there, there's good reason to believe they're hiding a lot of the casualties given the strict military censorship. But the economic aspect of this unsustainability, the fact that you have hundreds of thousands of reservists who are taken out of the civilian economy, Israel has to pay them. There is a lot of unrest among the reservists because the uh, Israeli military logistics are not up to scratch in terms of making sure they have decent housing and food and all of that kind of thing while they're sitting there on the perimeter of Gaza or up near the border in Lebanon. Uh, of course, you have hundreds of thousands of Israelis, perhaps up to 300,000 who have been displaced from their homes, particularly in the north all along the border and also from all of the settlements in the south, like Kibbutz Be'eri, we spoke about, Sterot, Ofakim, and so on. And uh, the fact that, economically speaking, foreign direct investment in Israel was already way down before the war because of the, the so-called uh, anti-coup protests. You had all these uh, venture capitalists. We talked about venture capitalists with Paul Bigar a, a, a couple of uh, weeks ago, and uh, tourism has collapsed completely, uh, and Israel's even running out of ammunition. So there, there are all sorts of reasons why uh, this war is unsustainable, but from Israel's perspective. But John, I want to ask you, that's all to lead up to this question, I mean, we can look at these videos and they show us pretty unbelievable scenes. But how do we know this is the big picture? How do we know we're not just comforting ourselves with these videos and saying, oh, well, you know, the resistance is doing great. Israel is still, after all, a massive army uh, backed by the United States whose aircraft carriers are just off the shore that has that has sent more than 300 huge cargo loads of, um, of, 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 of aircraft resupplying Israel with weapons. Isn't it just a matter of time before Israel grinds the resistance down and wins the war? Uh, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't appear to be the case. I mean, I, I think that the civilian, the civilian toll is right now as a serious problem, and the Israelis believe that they can bomb the civilians into Qassam, um, giving back their prisoners. But Qassam is not going to do that. They're the most disciplined people with prisoners, and nobody knows that better than the Israelis. You know, they held Galad Shalit for. Uh, um, for 2000 days. Um, and so the, the, the idea that you can win this war by just destroying the entire Gaza Strip, which is what they're doing, um, the, the resistance, even if the resistance were to stop fighting um, in, or, in order to regroup, uh, which isn't happening, um, that, that's still big picture. It doesn't solve the situation for the Israelis that you have uh, two plus million people in the Gaza Strip who are now, um, you know, devastated, lost everything, um, that, that's not going to break their will to fight. It's going to increase their will to fight. And then the, on the Israeli side, um, the, you have to question whether the, after this war, which is, they've admitted to 170 deaths, 
um, at this point, and they've admitted to 5,400 soldiers. Incidentally, uh, Yahya Sinwar apparently released a message, uh, an internal message. It wasn't public, but he talked about 5,000. He said from his fighters that they've heard 5,000 Israeli casualties um, and, uh, and 750 vehicles uh, a hit. And the Israelis today released figures saying 5,400 injured um, soldiers injured since October 7th. Um, so there, the two are, and the Israeli Ministry of Health, as I reported a couple weeks ago, said 10,000 soldiers and civilians have been treated in their hospitals, and that might include some double counting. Um, but you're actually from Yahya Sinwar and from the Israeli uh, Defense Forces are getting very similar numbers of casualties. Um, and that doesn't even include, as the Israelis talked about, the psychological damage of their soldiers, the psychological damage of their settlers. Are they going to repopulate those villages in the north and the south? Um, there's a lot of questions about the Palestinian uh, ability to rebuild, but there's the same questions about Israel. Yes, they can get billions of dollars in support from the Americans, um, but they can't replace um, the hundreds of thousands of workers that they've lost um, the the Thai workers they've lost they can't um, they can't constantly fight wars like this and have legitimacy the state's already lost its legitimacy in the international community in much of the world even with all the lies that they told that will eventually um, most of the world I think will will learn that those were lies um, Israel has a legitimacy crisis um, of its own so I would focus more on that than whether the besieged population can continue to resist because history shows uh, that they will like that's like sort of saying like will the slave uh, will that one slave revolt teach teach the slaves to not resist um, it doesn't work like that um, the next fight will be worse and, and one aspect also, again, this goes to the economic, but but even before the war, again, you we, we talked about the hundreds of thousands of people taken out of the civilian economy, displaced internally. So whatever businesses were operating in the north or in the southern uh, settlements are not operating now or, or severely degraded. But in the summer... Israel had announced yet another initiative to fund, you know, funding with, I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars, yet another initiative to try to stem the brain drain from Israel, which was an ongoing issue for years. They're always talking about their tech economy and their startups and that kind of thing. It's largely a myth because any startup that really got going in Israel would often quickly move abroad. And certainly the workers would quickly move abroad. And uh, so they were trying through these various initiatives to try to keep their most skilled, their most educated, their most productive workers in the country and uh, to stop them from seeking better, more secure lives abroad. And that was before the war. So what's it going to be afterwards? I think we're going to see an acceleration of that brain drain where where many of the large number of Israelis, uh, perhaps millions, who possess second passports or who have access to foreign citizenships through their parents or grandparents who can go back and get them, will leave. And even if they tell themselves, oh, it's just for a year or two or three years or whatever it is. In other words, 
the voluntary migration that Netanyahu is talking, so-called voluntary migration, because what it is is genocide and ethnic cleansing. The real voluntary voluntary migration is among is is among Israelis. So not only were they having a brain drain before the war, but also as of I think it was June, uh, they had the lowest number of incoming Jewish immigrants in years. I think it was some ridiculously low number for the year of they'd managed to to scrape up a couple of thousand desperate people who are willing to come to Israel. And that's why they saw, you know, there was almost jubilation in some quarters in Israel when the war in Ukraine escalated in February of 2022, because they're like, oh, how many Jews are in Ukraine who we can get to come to Israel? Well, they did get some. And, and from what I read, many of the Jews who went to Israel have now left the Ukrainian Jews, because it's just too dangerous. Uh, so <laughs> I saw that story too. Yeah, Incredible. I, it, it, yeah, they're it's it's they're not in a good position. And Israel themselves, they're saying they're fighting an existential war. Um, and and I, I will we'll have more time to cover it on future yeah. episodes. But it does look it looks like an existential war for them. It looks like a war of liberation for the Palestinians that has put the the Palestinian cause at the center of the world's attention. Um, and so I, I think we'll, we'll stay on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we wrap, do we wanna do one one last jelly bean for, for, for our fans out there? Well, no, before we, we unless, do the- Unless tomorrow we does, do we, the... could, we can, that's it for us. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's it. We, we, we no more jelly we beans. We have no more. <laughs> we have so many. Mars <laughs> there's one called Sniper on Sniper. Okay, yeah, Sniper on Sniper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is the Palestinian snipers identifying. Uh, again, this is the Al Ghuls. Um, Oops. And you can see the soldier get hit there and take a tumble. Oh. He's down. And then they can see the binoculars. That's the sniper thinking he's being so secretive but he hasn't covered his binoculars and boom Ooh. so sniper on sniper is interesting because now you're seeing uh you're, you're seeing the two-way exchange between uh the israelis and the palestinians on the ground uh in these areas um so it's taking out snipers and of course also just a note for non-soldier people that as you can imagine, snipers are something that are very psychologically devastating for soldiers. It's the idea that you could be shot at any moment from anywhere and you can't know where the people are um, is something American soldiers talked about all the time in Iraq. And this is far worse than that. And so I think that you can get the idea that this is going to become the type of war that the Israelis themselves aren't going to want to fight. But uh, we won't get ahead of ourselves on that one. Hmm. Well, um, before we wrap, uh, Ali, did you want to say something to our, we have, this is a new record for our viewers, uh, over 3,000. Um, yeah. Well, we're, we're delighted to have so many new viewers. And just a reminder to people that we, the live stream is only part of what we do as, as, uh, as great as the live stream is, if I say so myself, we have so much amazing reporting and analysis at the website, at the Electronic Intifada. Um, we have uh, stories we're publishing every day, reporting on the ground from our colleagues in Gaza. 
We are so grateful to them. They are living through just indescribably horrible situations, but they are continuing to write. They are insisting on it. Mm -hmm. We've said before, uh, many of them are students of our dear friend, Rifhat al-Arir, who was murdered and who left them with the mission of, um, of, of uh, telling the story. And uh, they say to us all the time, they say, we will not let Dr. Rifat down. And uh, we're very proud to work with them. We're very proud to support them. We are so grateful to all of uh, our viewers, our readers who share our work, who uh, send the articles to friends and family. I've had emails from people who tell us that they print some of our articles out, written by uh, some of our colleagues in Gaza, and hand them out at solidarity rallies and vigils and demonstrations, which is wonderful. Uh, all the ways that this information can be used to advocate. I've had um, emails from people who tell me that they're writing to their representatives or their MPs and sending articles uh, or videos from EI, and that's also wonderful, or just sharing with friends and family. And do remember that all of this work is, uh, we are independent, we are nonprofit, we are funded by viewers and readers who care about justice in Palestine as much as we do. So uh, if you can make a donation uh, to support this work, there's a link on the website there. But if you want more options in the description to this video, just down below, we have two separate um, donation platforms, one that has an option for uh, credit card and PayPal, and one that has an option for um, credit card Apple Pay, and you can use a U.S. bank account. And I will, we, we're only asking now because it is December, it is the end of the year, and this is the time when we do uh, raise most of the resources that we need throughout the year. Uh, but uh, I think, Nora, is this our last live stream of the year? I think so. so yeah. It's our last live <laughs> live stream of the year. We're going to have more amazing stuff. So stay tuned for that. And we're going to come back in the new year. So I think this is my last live request for the year. Yeah. Support us if you can. If you can't make a donation, it's okay. Don't. This is a collective effort. So those who can make a donation for yourself and on behalf of all the people around the world, you're going to help educate by helping us to get this information out. And uh, sign up for the mailing list. Very important right there, get updates up at the top left of the website. And again, just uh, because it is that time of year, I want to say again, thank you to all of our colleagues at the Electronic Intifada, those you see on the live stream, Tamara who's behind the scenes, and those who are working hard right now, writing, editing, uh, all of the amazing stuff we're publishing on the website. Uh, and as, uh, as always, we keep in our prayers and in our thoughts all of our friends and colleagues in Gaza who uh, at every moment we are thinking of you, we are working for you, we are shouting from the rooftops to stop the genocide and we will continue to do that. Thank you, everyone. And I yeah. wish you all, wish, wish everyone um, a happy new year, a peaceful new year, a new year of justice. Uh, it's a time of year where we feel reluctant to celebrate. Everything feels like it has 
that cloud over it because of the uh, great sadness we feel over so much devastating loss. But there are things to celebrate. The resilience of, of people in Gaza, the resistance of Palestinians everywhere. And we celebrate the solidarity from all over the world because ultimately those are the things that are going to bring liberation and victory to the Palestinian people. Absolutely. And every day that we wake up is one day closer to that liberation day for Palestine. And um, I do also want to plug um, on Friday, I believe we're going to be premiering an extraordinary interview uh, that Tamara just did with Abdel Jawad Omar, uh, who is a, a friend of the, the live stream. You've seen him many times here uh, in this in this format. But Tamara uh, sat down with Aboud um, Abdel Jawad and uh, talked about really the very like uh, intimate psychology of Zionism as a colonial project. Um, and it's just an extraordinary interview. Uh, they, they talk about how uh, the West is uh, complicit and underpins every single move that the Zionist settler colony has ever made. Um, they talk about the guilt uh, of Europe and how that fuels uh, the genocide in Palestine, and it's just remarkable. So I'm so excited um, that we're going to be premiering this, and it's going to be the first of many series that Tamara does um, for the podcast, and um, just extraordinary, extraordinary work on her part. Thank you all so much, Ali, John, uh, Asa, traveling today, um, Tamara, of course, and all of our colleagues at the Electronic Intifada, Maureen, David, Michael, Leah, uh, Omar, and my, and I said Michael already, and all of us here. Thank you all so much, and we will be back to you uh, next year.